All right, let's go Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we will have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, uh, we, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to, to be shaped by knowing Him. And so if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, then it seems pretty smart to us to actually put Bibles in people's hands and, you know, like, like find creative ways to get people to read them. And so uh, if you don't have one of your very own, I can fix that today. Come talk to me after class. Um, so we, are, we have taken a break from our big long-form series through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and we are walking through kind of a little shorter thing uh, series, uh, taking a look at each of the pieces that kind of make up the weekly gathering of the saints, the weekly church gathering, things that we normally do in a quote-unquote church service, all right, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and we're just asking the question, but why, right? Why, why do we do this? Or why do we do, do this thing in that specific way? And so we're just asking the why question. We're channeling our inner toddler for a little while and just kind of you know, just dealing with that. And those of you who have been parents, whether you're parents now or you're parents a long time ago, uh, uh, you had little kids in the house, you're really, really familiar with the why stage, right? And so sometimes the why question hits you as a great annoyance. It's the thousandth time that it's been asked in the last 15 minutes, and you're just done with it, right? You're, you're, just, you're just trying to pass them off, and you start to get sarcastic about it, or is that just me, right? You ever answered your, your kid a little less than truthfully just to be funny, just to see if they'll stop asking why questions? Is that, that's totally just me. Okay, whatever. All right, so sometimes the why question hits you as an, an annoyance, but man, then there are other times when the why question lights you up, causes you to slow down and think carefully about uh, not only why you do something and the manner in which, but all the pieces that kind of fit together and you start, you start sleuthing this stuff out. And, and, and so it causes you to step back and give some serious thought to the, the reasoning behind that thing. And I don't know, maybe it was just something that you've, you always assumed in the past. And, and, but now that the question has been forced upon you, you realize that the answer to that question actually matters, right? Like, it, it, it's not just a non-issue. How you answer the why you do this question can sometimes be of massive, massive importance. And so sometimes the, the deeper look into that thing causes you to change the way that you look at that thing. Maybe, maybe you decide that, oh, it's not really worth doing, or, or maybe it needs to be changed in the way that we approach it. Sometimes answering the why question honestly and intelligently causes you to change the way you see that something, whatever that something is. But then sometimes, in my absolute favorite moments in life, or when you discover that the reasoning behind something actually affirms what you've been doing all along. You ever found yourself in that moment? I adore those moments. You, you may not have seen the reasoning before you walked into it, but of course that's how it works. That, of course that's the way we ought to do this. Whether you, you kind of dumb lucked your way into, you know, you stumbled into doing it the right way, or probably more likely the one that handed that thing down to you did actually spend a lot of time thinking it through and they gave you a good thing. And maybe you didn't see it before, but now, now you see it and you embrace it. I love those moments in my life. And I think there are a lot of things 
in the regular weekly rhythms of the church gathering that fall into that latter category, that second category. Stuff that was thought through long, long ago. And whether we rushed into it without knowing or not, if we would just slow down and give some actual uh, attention and thought to it, would affirm them as good, lovely, beautiful, God-given things. You follow me? So we looked at why we gather we looked at why we proclaim God's word. We looked at why we baptize. And then last Sunday, we looked at why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And whether, you, whether or not you'd ever spent time thinking through those things before we address them in long length, in you know, sermon length form these last few weeks, like all of them we've discovered are good, logical things that God has given for God's people to participate in and given for our good and given for our benefit. And, but they're also incredibly sweet gifts that God has given to enrich us and to grow us and to turn us into the people that God is calling us to be. Gifts that, that teach us and unite us together as one body with many members. So we talked about five things so far. Are you ready to hit item number six? I want to look at why we pray as a gathered church. Like, Praying sounds like a good thing to do, right? Anybody, anybody dumb enough to go, nah, God doesn't want us to pray. <laughs> like, like, that's something we do. Prayer is obviously this really good thing. And so uh, the last couple of weeks, we've, we've, we kind of had to roll the question back all the way to what the gospel is and help us understand what the gospel is. Uh, roll it all the way back and rightly understand uh, how the gospel fits together in order to shape our answer for why we baptize and why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, right? Gospel clarity fueled our correct thinking about those two things. And so we had to roll it all the way back the last couple of weeks. And honestly, I really thought about needing to do that this week too. But I preached for over an hour last week and I swore I wouldn't do that again to you. So, but I thought about it. And I thought about it for a long time. Specifically over the doctrine of adoption. See, when we pray, we do not, hear me. We do not come as some kind of unwanted interloper before God who would prefer that we just handle our business on our own. That's not the game we're playing. We are adopted sons and daughters of the king. God delights in our coming to him. He has never, and I mean ever, been burdened by our prayer. Not once. He rejoices in it. He loves it. He wants more of it from you. So I could have started there this morning, but I didn't want to preach for an hour and a half today. So file that away for another time. It's dangerous when a pastor assumes some understanding, all right? But we're going to have to assume it today or else we, well, we wouldn't get to go home. All right, so that does create a little bit of a, re, of a weird reality for us, though. So God delights in our coming to him. We come as adopted sons and daughters of the king. So God delights in our coming to him. The problem, though, is that we don't always delight in going to God, do we? How many of you find prayer to be really, really, really easy? Something you slip into all the time. Never even have to think about it. Don't have to discipline yourself. It just comes off of your tongue that quick. Now, we don't always delight in going to God. We often find ourselves in situations where we would either prefer to handle our junk on our own because, let's be honest, we, we don't like the way we know he would handle it. 
Am I the only one that falls into that place sometimes? No thanks, I'll do it myself. But sometimes we avoid prayer because we're very aware of our sin. And we know that, you know, he's going to have to say some, a few things about that. And we prefer to hide just a little bit. I mean, I know he loves me and all, but I think I probably need to clean up A and B before I come to him. See why our understanding of the gospel matters? Yeah, it's another, another massive piece of this. And, and so when you add in the congregational piece of prayer, like, like we kind of struggle with this on the personal level, but then there's this congregational level where like praying in front of people it gets, in, it gets really complicated, right? Like, I, I mean, there's a bunch of people in our church family, amazing people, who would say yes to a thousand things that we asked them to do. But if I asked you to stand up here with a microphone and the lights on you and pray, like, what would you do? You'd drop down in the fetal position and start crying. <laughs> Am I wrong? There are, there are a bunch of you who would quickly sign up to scrub a toilet long before you got up here to pray. <laughs> By the way, we're always looking for new people on our cleaning teams. Just saying. It's not connected. I'm just throwing out an announcement. Now, somehow, some way, we've come to the conclusion, or at least this is true in my own heart sometimes. Maybe it is for you. Somehow, some way, we've come to the conclusion that the opinion of those watching us pray matters more than the one we're praying to. And so we allow intimidation to rule the day. But in that moment, we're forgetting all over again the sonship peace. We're forgetting who we've been declared to be. But there's another complication here. There's some, maybe you've met one before, maybe you are one. There's some who would argue that corporate prayer is actually forbidden by Jesus. I've met people like that. They would point to Matthew 6 to base their argument out of. And so, um, why don't you join me there? Matthew chapter 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. All right, so, so Jesus, he, I mean, he seems to have some pretty strong words here for some people who are praying in public, right? Like he's got some things to say. In verse 5, he calls them hypocrites. In verse 7, he calls them Gentiles, which if you didn't know is not a compliment, all right? Hypocrites and Gentiles. And so the argument often goes that Jesus forbids public prayer. Right? That, that's, that's what often gets touted out. I mean, I mean, he specifically mentions the synagogue, right? And not, not just the street corners, not just some guy with a sandwich board and a megaphone. No, he's talking about in, in what would be the Jewish equivalent of a church gathering, a local church. And so a lot of people argue that whenever we pray, it ought to always be done in secret hoping to receive some secret reward from God. 
There are some who see this as an incredibly clear command from Jesus, and anyone who would ever seek to pray in a public setting could, there's a lot of things going on, but at the very least, they are guilty, they are guilty of a hypocritical pride. And if they're a church leader, ooh, means you're actively leading people astray. There are a couple of problems with that logic. One, the first is that it robs Jesus of the very point he's making in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. He's he's not that impressed with outward spiritual action when it's devoid of a heart that truly loves him. He's just not interested. See, before you get to chapter 6, Jesus has already taught in chapter 5 that murder is a heart issue long before it's ever an action issue. He's already taught that lust is a heart issue. Adultery is a heart issue long before it's ever an action issue. And that swearing oaths is a heart issue. And that retaliation is a heart issue. And that divorce is a heart issue long before it's ever an action issue. And so Jesus says in verse 5 of chapter 6 that if all you're aiming for in your grand public prayer is that you may be seen by others, then congratulations, you got it. What's na- what now? What else are you aiming for? I mean, you got what you were hoping to get. Now what? You've got an audience. You've got a bunch of eyes on you. But guess what? You're also a giant hypocrite. What's your next step? Your words are empty just like the Gentiles. Those who have no idea who God is. Your words are worthless. Which is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes a gigantic deal out of telling us that there's going to be a whole bunch of people who spent their entire lives playing religious games who will still end up in hell. Why? Because their man-made works are the same as lawlessness when they're done for their own personal glory. Jesus will tell them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. See, the Jesus forbids public prayer crowd ultimately robs Jesus of a much, much deeper command to pursue him with your entire heart or maybe don't waste your time pursuing him at all. He sees what you're really after. He knows what your heart pursues. So the idea that prayer must be done in secret kind of ignores the bigger concern that prayer must be done with authenticity rather than for show is his point. So instead of seeing verses 5 through 8 as an outright prohibition of public prayer, I think it's more correctly seen, just like anger, just like lust, just like retaliation. I think it's more correctly seen as a heart issue that must be dealt with before the action. I'm going to say it a different way. Get private prayer right, and public prayer will follow its lead. That's what he's saying. But there's a second problem with the don't pray in public logic. And it's that Jesus immediately follows those words in verse 9 with teaching his disciples how to pray. And he does so in public. In fact, several of Jesus' prayers are recorded for us in the Bible, which means, if you've never thought through this before, it means there was an audience there to write them down. Right? Right? You got to deal with that. All right. Jesus prays a lot in public. You got the, 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 the teach us how to pray in Matthew 6, like his most famous prayer, the high priestly prayer right? in John. That, people are hearing that. 
It's a public prayer. But, but not only does Jesus pray in public a lot, but the book of Acts is filled with moments where the disciples uh, uh, you know, had public and congregational prayer. All right? uh, Acts 114, 242, 3-1, 424, 759, 815. Those of you who are taking notes are probably mad at me this morning. All right? Acts 12 is literally a story about Peter being released from jail and saved from execution because of a prayer meeting happening on the other side of town, right? I mean, we can keep going. We're only halfway through the book of Acts. There's a few more examples, but I think you get the point, right? So Jesus prayed in public. The disciples prayed in public. We also see in the New Testament epistles a whole bunch of instruction as to how congregations are to publicly pray. And so it is a clear reality that corporate prayer is all over the New Testament post-Jesus making this claim. So if it is forbidden by Jesus, everybody's failing at this, including Jesus. So maybe there's some nuance here that we need to see. So let's look at... Let's look at Jesus' example first, the model prayer in Matthew 6. So assuming, assuming that that prayer is a good thing, and assuming that public prayer is at the very least allowed, right? It's not forbidden, right? that it's at least allowed, right? Uh, obviously, with the caveat that there's a clear warning to avoid sinful grandstanding, right? And so, assuming that prayer is good, and assuming that public prayer, congregational prayer is allowed, I, I think the next question is, well, is there anything about it that's actually good? right? It's one thing to say that something is not forbidden. It's another thing entirely to argue that it's actually a good thing that we ought to pursue, right? If, if something is dangerous and there's no good in it, then maybe we ought to consider just not messing with it. But if there's something good there and valuable there, something beneficial there, and maybe even necessary there, then is there something about it that we actually ought to pursue it? And those of you who have been here long enough already know the answer, right? Is, is congregational prayer worth the risk? Yeah, yeah, there's some good things about it. Look at verse 9. Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so if you grew up reading the King James, you're probably continuing the recitation there. You got some other things you want to say. Uh, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, right? right, um, If you're new to the Bible, that section isn't in the oldest manuscripts that we have. Uh, And so uh, we we don't think it was originally part of what Matthew wrote. And so modern literal translations do not include it. Uh, And so we want to record what Jesus actually says, not what just sounds nice. And so we're pretty sure that he didn't actually say that part. And so modern translations don't have it. Um, But there are several things that Jesus did say. He did say. And not only does it instruct us how we pray privately, but I think it also instructs how we pray together as a church. For starters, congregational prayer disciples us. It disciples us. It trains us and teaches us. I I mean, that's what Jesus is literally doing in this moment, right? He's teaching them to pray by praying. He's praying in front of them with the intent that they're going to pick some of that up and start using it. It's discipleship 101, right? That's all it is. Nobody becomes a new Christian and immediately starts praying with in, in a spiritually mature way. Have you ever watched somebody learn how to swim? It's a mess. A little funny, 
but it's a mess. They're just all over the place, right? It's pretty awkward when people are first learning to pray. And so how do we grow in our ability? Well, a clear answer is that we practice. That's certainly valuable, but, but another important way is by simply being in the presence of people who are praying. We soak some of that up. Those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time now, what comes out of you when you pray is this beautiful mixture of your own personality and a lot of idiosyncrasies of the people who have been you know, influential in your growth. It's just this weird dance that you play. Maybe you had a friend who led you to Christ, and there's probably a trace of your parents in there. Maybe you had a pastor who always played, prayed with a, a specific rhythm. All right? And so uh, maybe your spouse has got a little bit in there, but there's this weird mixture in you of your personality and all the influences that you've got. And some of those influences are really good influences, and some of those influences are maybe not so good of influences, but it's what's in you, right? And that's what comes out of you. But whether it's one-on-one or in a congregational setting, public prayer is at least partially designed to teach. Partially designed to teach. It teaches style and form, but it doesn't just teach style and form. It also teaches content as well. We're taught what to pray when we pray together. We've got a few things we can point to. First, we, we see that Jesus' model prayer trains us to trust and depend on God. Verse 11, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm the type of guy who doesn't want to wait for God to provide. Are you any different than me? I'm the type of person that, that wants to see what I need and put it on the to-do list and try to knock out that to-do list before everybody else has had their morning coffee. Anybody else? I got some skills, and I'm pretty organized. I don't do so well in the slow down and depend department, right? Anybody else like me? And yet Jesus would have me intentionally stop, get out of my way, and ask God to provide. Not in the the far out, forward thinking plan that I like. God, could you take care of this thing 10 and 13 and 20 years from now? I got some ideas I want to kick around. My need's for today. For today. I need to provide today's bread. It's a reminder that my to-do list isn't actually capable of accomplishing what I need today. I need them to provide in this moment. But that's not just something that's valuable for individuals to learn. Churches are in a healthy place when they realize that too. Our programs, our budgets, the, the talent that God has provided here through, through uh, leaders and through volunteers. Listen, we are not as capable of providing for our daily needs as we sometimes like to believe that we are. We need to be reminded that we are not the solution to our needs. We don't have it in us. We need to beg him to provide So good congregational prayer trains us to trust and depend on God for our needs rather than our own make-believe self-sufficiency. We like to believe we're self-sufficient. We're not. And we need to be trained out of that. And if you've never thought about it, like just practical real-world stuff, this is why we pray both before and after the sermon. 
You ever, you ever wonder why we do that? I, like, I, that seems like a lot of prayer. Why do we sandwich the sermon with prayer? The preacher has a lofty responsibility to be prepared for entering the pulpit. They've spent countless hours getting ready for that moment. But listen, it does not matter how prepared they are, and it does not matter how talented they are. What we need in that moment is something that only God can give. He's the one that provides. He's the only one that can change people's hearts, period. Period. And so we make a habit around here of asking him first to prepare us for his word and then to faithfully apply his word in us. He must provide our daily bread, even when that bread is spiritual fruit. The first thing we see in Jesus' model prayer is that it trains us to trust and depend on God. The second thing that we see in Jesus' model prayer is that it trains us to continually repent of our sin. Verse 12, right? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven who? Our debtors. Thesis numero uno of Martin Luther's 95 Theses said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. In the very same way that we ask God to provide our daily bread, we should also ask him to forgive us daily. Now, does, does that mean that we're asking God to, to re-save us every morning? No, that's not what that means. But what it does mean, though, is that we acknowledge that our sin is ever before us and we need new mercies for this morning. We need his mercies this morning. We acknowledge that we, our need for him far outpaces just physical provision. Good congregational prayer is publicly honest about our need for God's grace and it disciples us to, to run to and then cling desperately to Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. We don't have the ability to clean ourselves up. We need him to continue to clean us. We need his grace today just as much as we needed it yesterday. That's true for the church just as much as it's true for the individual. We need His grace. The third thing that Jesus' model prayer trains us in is to love God's glory more than our own need. Verses 9 and 10. Read that again. Look at it. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know if you noticed, but that's not just tacked onto the end of our needs list. It comes first, right? Why does it come first? Maybe because it's of primary importance? Maybe. Our first prayer, when, before we get to anything we might want, is that God's name would be made more famous, that his rule and his reign would be loved here just as much as it's loved in heaven. Obeyed here just as much as it's obeyed in heaven. Does that mean that the, the desperate moment whispered under our breath, oh God, would you take care of this? Without stopping to you know, make sure we hallow his name. Is that, is that out of bounds? Not a bit. Not a bit. Firstly, because there's an assumption here that you've got a regular diet of pleading for God's glory to be enlarged before you ever get to, to the things you, that moment of desperation. But there's a second assumption here that I think is massively important. See, the hallowing of God's name is not just something we're hoping to prioritize. It is the platform that our requests ultimately rest upon. 
God, going to God for our daily bread and our continual need for grace can only happen if he is, in fact, the holy and sovereign one that can do something about our need. Without that, we're in a lot of trouble because he can't actually provide, right? He's not some genie in a lamp. He's not some cosmic Santa Claus. He is Lord and creation of all the earth. And sometimes, sometimes he willingly interferes in his creation at our request for his glory and for our good right? And so good private prayer begs God to be made more famous, and good congregational prayer disciples us to always keep that first and foremost in our hearts and minds. It trains us in this. When we pray as a body of believers here, we want, we want to teach these things by modeling these things in the hopes that all of us walk out of here better disciples of King Jesus. So I decided to do things a little differently this morning. Normally I come up and talk for 45 minutes to an hour with no interruptions. But we're talking about prayer this morning. So like, doesn't it seem smart to you to maybe pause every once in a while, call a time out a couple of times and pray? Doesn't seem wise. So I've asked Jim Dempsey to come and lead us in prayer this morning for these things. God, we come before you as your children. You're the father who adores his children. You are the one, the only, great, completely knowing, completely loving, completely honest, completely righteous one. But you promised and you've demonstrated that you love us through whatever the circumstances are as we react to you. Lord, help us to recognize you as the one true God, the one who's all powerful, the one who's all living, the one who's everywhere, the one who's all loving the one who prepares for us, who presents to us, who teaches us, the one who is patient, we thank you. Lord, you promised in your word you would provide your peace through all circumstances But that causes us to think about our reaction. Help us to acknowledge what you have done for us as individuals, as a body of believers. For those who are yet to come to you as you work in their lives. Thank you that you are trustworthy. You are constant. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be encouragers of each other, to watch and see your righteousness. 
there are lots of times when it's far from our thinking what the right thing is to do, what the holy thing is to do. Help us to see you as you truly are, to recognize that you have implanted in us from the very beginning and by the aid of your spirit, understanding of your righteousness and what you desire for us. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to demonstrate it that others would see you more clearly. Lord, as we pray, as we have prayed this morning, we've made requests. We've demonstrated we care about others who are going through a tough time. Lord, we should help us to demonstrate that, not just in prayer, but in action. Lord, you are the one that has done all these things in the past and will continue. You promised. May we glorify your name through song and prayer, through responding to your direction, through living out Jesus' example in our own lives. Thank you for being here with us this day. Thank you for loving us. May we glorify your name in word and in deed, together, and encourage each other to do the same. Amen. So as great as congregational prayer is for discipling us, that is not all that it does. Congregational prayer also unites us. It unites us. Uh, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to adjust my method of attack here. So hit several different places rapid fire. If you're a note taker, sorry. All right. Otherwise, you'll be fine. All right, so we've got, uh, I think we were going to have the text up on the screens uh, when we get there. Uh, and, but if you're fast enough to turn in a physical Bible, power to you. Good for you. All right, number one, corporate prayer is a key piece of what unites us together as, a, as one body with one identity. All right, I'll read that again. Corporate prayer is a key piece of what unites us together as one body with one identity, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. All right, um, so breaking of the bread, so prayer wasn't in the earliest church, early church, uh, prayer wasn't just something they were doing. It was a key piece of, uh, uh, it was a, you know, it was a key piece of who they are. It bound them together, right? And so uh, when you talk about identity of the early church, you've got some markers there. They devoted themselves to what? What did they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. All right, so is it all that they were doing? No, but it was a massive piece. It was at least a quarter of what they were doing. All right, number two, corporate prayer unites us together in a spirit of common gratitude and thanksgiving. All right? Corporate prayer unites us together in a spirit of common gratitude and thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Those words are written to a church. Not individuals, a church. The gathering of the saints in Philippi. 
And so when we pray together, God works in our hearts to produce gratitude corporately as well as individually. There's a corporate identity of our thanksgiving and gratitude. Third thing we can point to, corporate prayer unites us together in our fight against personal sin. All right? It unites us together in our fight against personal sin. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another, and then he says, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Praying for each other's junk is an act of loving service for your brother or sister in Christ. It just is. Is there a danger of that, you know, that going off the rails and turning into gossip? Yeah, yeah, there honestly is. Unfortunately, the answer is yes. But the fix for that danger is to be more diligent to do it with humility, right? It's not to get rid of the good thing. Number four, corporate prayer unites us together in the, the discovery of God's will. You ever thought through that? Like, how do we determine what God's will is? Well, we pray about it together. Acts 13, 2, 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Paul and Barnabas are sent out as missionaries from the church of Antioch because God told them to do so during a prayer meeting. Everybody walked out the door that night certain that God's will was clear for Barnabas and Saul. Send them and they're going to go. They discover that by praying together. There's a fifth thing we can point to. Corporate prayer unites us together as it emboldens us to do what God has already commanded. Acts 4.31 And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The church was empowered and united in that moment to do what God wanted them to do, even as they were under the threat of imprisonment and death from the religious authorities. They didn't care. They were emboldened. Prayer did that. God used prayer to do that. Congregational prayer is one of the tools that God uses to bind us together, bind us to each other. And God's, in good congregational prayer, we would argue, speaks with a singular voice of one body with many members. It unites us together. So we're going to call another time out. I've asked Jeff Muster to come and lead us in prayer for these things. Please join me in prayer. Lord, when I, when I get a picture of you in my head, it's often that picture that's found in Isaiah, where Isaiah looks into the throne room and sees one who is so high and exalted and mighty, surrounded by these seraphim, these these creatures beyond our comprehension. Or I get that picture of you from Revelation, seated upon the throne, so, so glorious a throne that we cannot even look upon it, to myriads and myriads of angels proclaiming your holiness and your righteousness and all of heaven bowing before you and the earth and the heavens fleeing from your presence. Father, we see this this picture of you so unapproachable, but yet, as Pastor Stephen mentioned in his sermon, you have adopted us 
Father, I and my brothers and sisters that are surrounding me in this, this congregation this morning, your children through Christ, the ones you have invited into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus who is offered for us, we come together, Lord. You're a family, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, those whom have been redeemed and ransomed and called and equipped with your spirit. We come together this morning, Lord, in humility. We come together, Lord, thankful that we are not under your wrath any longer. We come together thankful that you are a God who provides for us. We come together just amazed by your glory, amazed by your love, amazed by your grace this morning. We come together, your children, Lord, to a father who we know loves us more than any earthly father has ever even been able to love. And we come together just so thankful for this, for, thankful for the blood of Jesus, thankful for the fact that in spite of our sin, in spite of the ugliness of the things that we do and we say and we think, he was willing to go to the cross to become that sacrifice that was once and for all offered up for our, our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins, that our sins might just be cast far from your presence, Lord. We are thankful and we are grateful. We are thankful that you are with Terry right now, Lord. We are thankful that you are with others in our congregation that are suffering, that are hurting. We are thankful, Lord, that you, you are the father of our family. And Lord, we do battle things. I mean, in, we look upon your holiness, almighty God, and we see our sin. We see our unrighteousness. We see the filth of who we are, the wretched, wretchedness of who we are apart from you. And Father, we, you know, Jesus commanded us to be holy as you are holy, but we can't do that. Father, we pray that you will can just give us the grace to walk in holiness, to walk in a manner which pleases you, to walk in unity as brothers and sisters. Lord, we ask this, Lord, and, and we ask, Lord, as we gather together as a church family, as, as, as the body of Christ, that you will help us to see your will, to understand what you are doing in Nashua Baptist Church, to understand our place in the community, Lord God, in Nashua, in the surrounding communities, to, to understand what you would have us do. And give us the grace to do it. Lord, it's wonderful how in Scripture you say that you both give the desire and the ability for us to follow you. Lord, your children want to follow you this morning. Your children want to glorify you this morning. Lord, your children want to honor you this morning. We just pray for your grace to do that. And help us to walk forth from here 
doing all that you would have us do to the glory of your name. And we ask these things through Jesus Christ, the magnificent one, the one who is just deserving of all praise and all honor. Amen. Have we all seen examples of congregational prayer that didn't live up to the ideals we're pointing to this morning? Yeah. Yeah, we surely have. Have we all seen moments where someone was clearly more interested in hearing themselves pray than of pursuing any of the good things that we've talked about? Yeah. Yeah, In fact, I'll go ahead and be the most honest guy in the room. I, I haven't simply witnessed those moments. I think I've been guilty of those moments on occasion. I'm there. Maybe you are too. But when congregational prayer is held up as what God has actually given it to us to be, it disciples us and it unites us. And it does both of those things in ways that other things can't touch, can't keep up with. It grows us into who God is calling us to be by repeatedly training us to value what he values. And it binds us together as the bride of Christ, pursuing him with one heart and him and his kingdom. It disciples us and it unites us. And so the question that now remains is, well, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Like, what do we do with this? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, I I think, man, we lean in just a little bit more, just a little bit firmer every time we have these moments of congregational prayer, right? Every time he's seen fit to, to give us this moment of praying together as one body, man, I think we lean into that as best we can. And so I'm like, this is a really practical question. How much prayer should we have in a church service? The answer, more. Can we squeeze in some more? Let's do that. We need it. They're not just transitions. They're not just time filler. We believe that it is a good gift from our God who loves us. He's given it for several good things. So if you're still the type that's if you're still the type that's growing in maturity here, you're not sure how to pray yet, listen. Learn. Learn by watching those who are mature pray. Lean in, pick up the cues, listen to what they pray for and how they talk to a God who loves them. Learn from them. Learn from them. If you're the type that you're the type that you know that feels like you are in that mature place, and we need you to pray in front of people. Like that's how discipleship works. We need you to lean into that for the good of those coming behind you. So we lean into this good gift. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action to whatever God is stirring in your heart. I'll be down front if anybody wants to talk about stuff. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Uh, You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. I, I get it. Talking about prayer this morning is kind of foreign topic to you like 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 talking to a god you don't know feels ridiculous can we just be honest about that it does um and if 
He were a faraway God on a faraway throne, just kind of banging his fist, waiting for you to get things figured out. That would be a ridiculous idea. But that's not who he is. He's the God who came near. He's the God who came near. Those that, that were separated from him because of our own rebellion and our own sin have been justified and, listen, reconciled to him by the sacrifice of his son. Jesus came and he lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You don't have to wait some, for some other moment. You can do that today. You can respond to Jesus, the one who, came, who was far away, came near, and he wants you to know him, to walk deeply with him. So maybe today, for the very first time, you see the sin that separates you. You see your desperate need for a Savior, and you are ready to accept his work on your behalf to reconcile you to himself. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you want to talk about it. But whoever you are, and however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God that created such an incredible gift like prayer. Not simply a list of mandates we are to follow in your word, hope for the best. You are not a faraway God with a list of rules, do's and don'ts that we hope we've got figured out. You're the God who wanted to be known and loved and walked with daily. You're the one that takes up residence in us. And even when, when we are weak, prays for us. God, would we ignore the unnecessary things that often intimidate us. When we find our rest in who you have declared us to be by your grace. And help us pray well. Where we are insufficient, grow us. Give us good examples to follow. God, for those that you have matured here, would you help us step up in, in ways that disciple well? Father, for those here who do not know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw men and women to yourself and add them to your kingdom this morning? Not so that we can build our church, but so that you can build your kingdom and renown. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.